Well, for some time I have been um, a member of a group on Facebook made up of preachers. It was actually started by Bobby Ross. He's a uh, writer for the Christian Chronicle. And it's an interesting group. Typically what Bobby will do, at least once a week or depending on what's in the news, is he'll, he'll post the topic that's in the news of the day, the uh, transgender bathroom issues and you know, all this stuff that you see in the news. And, and then Bobby will ask us, how will this affect your congregation? Or what will it change about what you say on Sunday? Well, on Friday of this week, Bobby posted this question. He said, Dear preachers, what will you say on Sunday? Will your message be different than originally planned given what has occurred in our nation this week? If so, how? Well, unless you've been living in a cave, you've turned on your news, you've seen it on the internet. The news is really good, but this week, as Jim noted, it's been seemingly even worse. There was another tragic shooting of a young man in Minnesota. The aftermath of it was captured on video, and it has once again inflamed racial tensions in our country. Thursday night and Friday morning began with news of five Dallas police officers killed, seven others wounded, again uh, related to racial tensions in our country. We have men and women here in this congregation who have served in law enforcement or you have family who serve in law enforcement. There are many people in our congregation who have first-hand experienced racial injustice. You've been pulled over because you were the wrong color in the wrong part of town at the wrong time of day. Or you've been denied a job. Or you've been looked down on just merely because of the color of your skin. And there may be some people here or there may be some people who look around our auditorium and say, well, Wilshire's got this thing figured out. I mean, look at your neighbor. What we do here every Sunday is highly unusual. Martin Luther King famously said, 11 o'clock is the most segregated hour in America. I'm glad at least at Wilshire we're trying not to be that way. And so Bobby asked the question, how will your sermon be different, if anything? What should I say this morning? If you were preaching today, what would you say? I've heard some of you in the past say, you know, I I really come to church to get away from that stuff. To turn off the news, to get away from politics, to get away from all those conversations. I just want a safe place to go. And not hear about that. And so you were praying that I don't spend the next 20 or 30 minutes talking about that. We even have a common phrase that's uttered in some of our prayers. Help us for this hour. Put the cares and concerns of this world out of our mind so that we can focus on you, Father. And the very fact that I've even raised the issue and the question this morning makes some of you sick at your stomach and ready more than usual for this sermon to be over. Well, so I've decided with all the discomfort and difference of opinions on these issues, 
I've decided that I'll instead stick to the sermon that I've already prepared. After all, the news did break primarily on Friday. And most of my sermon was written by the time I saw the news. So call it sheer laziness or just extreme caution. I think I'll just stick to what I already prepared. We've been talking about the temple over the last several weeks. We, Jim has led us through this thought of the theology of the temple. And it turns out in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, what we think and what we believe about the temple is a significant thing to our reading and understanding of Scripture. And so this morning, I come to the book of Revelation. I've been asked to talk about the role that the temple and the temple imagery plays in the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is a weird, strange book. We, we can second and third that, right? It's a weird, strange book. And so a lot of times we don't even like to touch the book of Revelation. It's, it's weird, it's obscure, it's apocalyptic language. And that's just a fancy preacher word that means unveiling. It's, it's wrapped in language that's telling a deeper story, but on the surface it looks like something else. But to read, a, to read and understand Revelation, what you have to do is you have to understand that the writer of Revelation, John, expects you to be familiar with conversations that's happened elsewhere. It's like, you ever talk to someone who really watches a lot of movies that you don't watch? And in the middle of their conversation, they'll say, well, it's like, it's like that phrase that, you know, that's said in the movie. Now, to the dismay of people like Ike Wilson and Jim Baird and David Jer- I don't watch a lot of movies. And so talking to them can sometimes be an interesting occurrence because I try to fake it. You know, and I just... And then they say, you haven't even watched the movie, have you? Then you're busted. There's no way out of that. And Revelation is like that. Revelation expects you to have read the Old Testament. To know some of the language, to know some of the figures, to know kind of what's happening in the scenes. It's not just what you read. It's, it's got a history behind it. And I would even suggest, perhaps maybe too arrogantly, that the book of Revelation expects you to have been paying attention through our sermon series on the temple. Because it turns out, language of the temple impacts the meaning of how you read Revelation. Now, before we get into Revelation, let me remind you quickly to review the temple. The Old Testament, the temple was this place where God said, I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. It began with the synagogue. It actually began with the tabernacle way before the tabernacle even. But God said, I want to dwell with you. I want to live among you. I want to establish my name before you. I want there to be a place that you know and you're reminded that I am in your presence. That's the tabernacle. So as the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness, their God was in the form of the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud, uh, the pillar of fire and the cloud. God was with them. He was tabernacling with them. And then Solomon built this beautiful, majestic temple that represented the beauty and glory and the holiness of God. God wanted to be among his people. Now, God dwells everywhere. The scripture never questions that. But the temple was the one place where heaven and earth were somewhat joined together. And people knew that the temple was a place to encounter the presence of God. And when the people quit recognizing that, And they started confining God to the temple. 
God said it doesn't work that way. And so in the book of Ezekiel, you get this image of God packing his bags, in essence, and moving out of the temple. In the, in the book of Jeremiah, God sends Jeremiah to the doorstep of the temple to say, God will destroy even this place. And then it happens. God wipes out his own temple. When the Babylonians come and utterly destroy it. And then prophets come along and begin telling of a time when God would build a new temple. When God would set his name on high and people from everywhere would come to be in the presence of God at the temple. You open your New Testament and the writer of the New Testament makes a strong argument about who Jesus is. Jesus is everything the temple was meant to be. You go to the temple for sacrifice, Jesus is the sacrifice. You go to the temple for blessing, Jesus is blessing. You go to the temple to speak and encounter God, and in Jesus Christ, you speak and encounter with God. That's why John says Jesus was the temple. When Jesus goes to the temple, it says he became angry one day and he said, it's because you have taken this temple and you have somehow convinced people that the temple of God belongs to one people, one nation, one, one ethnic group. And I'm telling you, God meant it to be for all nations. God does not put those boundaries there. And so the nation, the, the temple is destroyed again. And then, as we've talked about in this sermon series, God says His church is the temple. He wanted His, his temple to be for all nations. And in Jesus' ministry, it went to all nations. He talks to a Samaritan woman. In the New Testament church, there's an Ethiopian man, perhaps the first non-Jewish convert in all of Christian faith, is a black man from Ethiopia. And then it goes to a Roman centurion in Acts chapter 10. And then Paul, in the book of Acts chapter 21, believing all these things that the Old Testament said would happen with the temple, that anybody of any nation could come in. When Paul goes to the temple in Acts 21, do you know why Paul was arrested? They arrested Paul because they thought, they assumed, that Paul had brought this guy named Trophimus, who happened to be a Gentile, they thought he had dared to bring a Gentile into the temple of God. Can you believe that? And so the text of Acts says that they slammed the gates of the temple. Had they been reading their Bibles, had they come across Isaiah 56, they would have seen clearly where Isaiah said there will come a time in the temple of God where all nations and Gentiles will be allowed into my temple. Eunuchs will be led into the temple of God. All the divisions out there, all the racial and ethnicity, all of that stuff is going to fall apart when the temple of God comes. And at the very hint that a Gentile has walked into the temple, they panic and they slam the doors of the temple. Ironic, isn't it? So Jim and I have talked about how the temple imagery of the Old Testament and New Testament come to this image of the New Testament. You read the book of Ephesians. There was a church in Ephesians. But they were torn apart by racial divisions. Some Jews, some Gentiles. And it seems that the Jewish people in the book of Ephesians, 
thought that the Gentiles were kind of second class citizens of the kingdom of God. That if you didn't grow up Jewish, if you didn't grow up going to the temple or the synagogue, if you didn't grow up reading the Old Testament law, then somehow, even though you've come to Jesus, bless your heart, you're not a full-fledged member of God's kingdom. You can worship by us, you can worship in the general area of us, but you are not as equally accepted in God's eyes. And the book of Ephesians says it doesn't work that way. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says that we have all spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ. Not, not in your racial background, not in your, your cultural background. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are saved 100% in the eyes of God. The church in Ephesus struggled with that and and so in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, using all this imagery of the temple, he says, you once were afar off, the court of the Gentiles was out there. That in Jesus, God tore down the wall that separated us. You remember the wall Jim talked about that said, if, if the man of any other nation crosses this wall, his blood is on his own hands. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, that wall has been torn down. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that, that God is taking you, Jew and Gentile, and He's making you one new humanity. And He's building us into a living temple of God. That's temple theology. There are no divisions in the kingdom of God. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's not a Jewish version and a Gentile version. Not a rich version or a poor version. There's not a black version or a white version. There is one in Christ. Now that's just review. I thought before we jump into the book of Revelation, it's important that we remember where we've been. Besides, I worked all week on this sermon. Revelation chapter 4. There are three texts, or at least there are only three texts that I'm going to talk about today that seems to use this imagery of temple in a significant way. In Revelation chapter 4, you have this background of the book of Revelation. All of this temple imagery coming together. The book of Revelation is written to a minority community who's being persecuted and suffering. It's being written to people who feel and sense injustice in the world and the culture around them. It's being written to people who are persecuted, who are put out, who are suffering, who are abused, simply because of who they are. And so in Exodus chapter 1, or I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 1, the writer John says, I was a partaker of the tribulation of the kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus on the island called Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. Revelation is written to these people who are suffering. In chapter 2 and verse 9 of Revelation, 
Jesus writes to a church, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation. It's written to a community of people who were crying out and begging for God's justice and righteous judgment. In chapter 6 of the book of Revelation, God unleashes a series of judgments against the world and the controlling powers. There's war, there's famine, there's death. And just about the time God is about to release another, to open another seal, the scene changes. And listen to this, chapter 6 and verse 9. When he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And because of the testimony which they had maintained, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on earth? There was injustice. There was suffering. There was pain. And it was everywhere. And even those who had died for the faith wanted to know, When is God going to stop it when is God going to get on his throne and set every injustice right when is God going to stop the persecution when is God going to stop the injustice and the mistreatment when is God going to tear down the boundaries that have been put up by the world and the culture around us and in chapter 6 of Revelation they're crying How long are you going to let this happen, God? And any time you see that phrase or that question in Scripture, how long, it's really a way of saying, it's been long enough. God, when are you going to do something? Well, that's background of the book of Revelation. So these texts about temple, these texts about the book of Revelation are written to a persecuted community, a persecuted minority community of Christians suffering for who they are. And it's written to a group of people wondering when in the world is God going to do something about this? Revelation 4. After the letters to the churches, John is taken to see something remarkable. Chapter 4 and verse 1. After this I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here. I'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne. And seated, with one seated on the throne, and the one seated there looked like jasper and carnelian. And around the throne a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders dressed in white robes, gold crowns on their heads. Coming from the temple were flashes of lightning and, and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne stood seven flaming torches. Around the throne there were four living creatures full of eyes. Verse 8, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, were full of eyes and around the inside... Day and night, without ceasing, they sang, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. When John gets this vision in heaven, 
in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the crying out for God, God says, come here. I want to show you what's going on in heaven. And when John gets there, he's in the heavenly temple. He is in the presence of God. And brothers and sisters, where was God at? He was seated on his throne. You hear what John is saying to the, to the church? To the minority community being persecuted and suffering? To the people crying out for justice? The people wondering how long is it going to take for God to do something? John says you need to know first of all, God hasn't gone anywhere. God is seated on His throne. God sees everything that's happening. God knows everything that's taking place. This scene is an incredible scene. Because what you notice throughout this scene are all these different images. And they all represent something significant. There is, of course, the jasper, this, this incredible white imagery of purity. This deep red color that perhaps represents the righteousness of God. There is a rainbow around the throne of God that represents God's promise and mercy. There is this, this emerald, this green, this imagery of life. There is flashes of thunder and lightning, this image of God and His justice and His righteousness. God sees everything. God knows everything. God lets nothing pass without His notice. And the suffering church, wondering where God's presence is, John says, I've seen Him. He's on His throne. Don't read the news and wonder where is God. He's there. Don't watch the violence happening in your world. God is still on His throne. No one can move Him. Nothing will shake Him. He is seated there. He always has been. He always will be. And you notice what's happening? They're worshiping in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When you go back and you read the theology of the temple, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, talks about how the, the temple we have here is just a copy. It's a copy of what's in heaven. And the whole argument of Revelation or the whole argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ has gone into the temple presence of God, not in the copy, in the real thing. That if you are a child of God, if you are a Christian, then you're not dealing with a second-hand replica. Then you are in the actual, literal presence of God Almighty. And when the church gathers to worship, when the temple of God is worshiping, we are doing exactly what they do in heaven. And we are declaring that God sits enthroned. Despite the chaos... And the questions we worship as a declaration of our faith that God still is enthroned. Brother who preaches in Ferguson, Missouri, was interviewed by a newspaper. What are you going to say? He said, Worship is our protest. 
When we worship, we are declaring to the world that God still is in control. When we sing praises, when we pray prayers, when we join in fellowship, when we enact who we are as the temple of God, we are saying God is the one we serve. God decides who we're going to be. God dictates the way we respond. Not the world, not the culture. We're going to worship. John sees in heaven the scroll in the hand of God. Nobody can open the scroll. It's this scene that unfolds through chapter 4 and chapter 5. And no one can open this scroll. Everybody wants to know what's in the scroll. And no one can open it except a lamb that has been slaughtered. It's the power of Jesus Christ. It's not in the armies. It's not in the protests. It's not at the ballot box. It's in Jesus Christ. And when we worship, we are gathered around the same throne in the real temple that you see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. That's one text of Revelation that deals with this temple imagery. And it just brushes on it. There's, there's so much more. I want to show you a second text. This one's in chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. This is a neat one. Again, the book of Revelation bounces off all these its seven seals and seven trumpets and, and people, smart people, debate what these things mean. It, it is a sign in one way or the other that God is still seated in glory and in power, that God has all this under control, and that God will take justice to the unjust world. That God will handle persecution and abuse in His own time and in His own way. And so in Revelation chapter 11, we come to this second image of the temple. And what you find is that it falls in the middle of hail and fire and mountains shaking and seas and ships are dying. And in chapter 8, the prayers of the saints, again, we're using temple imagery, the prayers of the saints and incense appear before God. And in the midst of all this suffering and pain, look what happens. Chapter 11 and verse 1. I was giving, given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. It's an odd text. It is a much debated text. But let me suggest what I think is going on. This idea of measuring the temple. You read your Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 2 and verse 2. The prophet is sent again to measure. When God measures something, He's taking the boundaries of it. He's finding its true standing, where it's really at, so that He can protect it. And you don't measure, John is told, don't measure the court of the nations, the court of the Gentiles. And it may be, again, this is open to interpretation, it may be that what John is being told is, you measure the true temple of God, because in the true temple of God, there is neither white nor black nor Jew nor Gentile nor rich or poor nor male nor female. In the true temple of God, we're all here. The court of the nations that was outside of the temple... 
Let it belong to them because they're going to trample it. But the true people of God will be recognized and protected by God. When people really are in Christ, when people really live up to their calling, God has measured and He knows. He knows His people. You're not going to sneak into the kingdom of God. You can't pretend to sing songs on Sunday and live a totally different life on Monday and think you're going to be in the temple of God and protected. You can't read 1 John and talk about how I love God but I hate my brother and be a Christian. That's not the temple of God. It doesn't measure that way. You can't treat another human being different because they come from a different place because they make different money, because they look different from you, and expect to be part of the measured temple of God. God measures His temple. And in the midst of all the destruction, and in the midst of all of the fear that unfolds in the book of Revelation, God says, I know where my temple's at, and it will be safe. That does not mean for the church in Revelation that they wouldn't suffer persecution, because they did and they were. But what it does mean is that God will bless His people. That God's people will be protected. And God's people will dwell in His presence. And for the church suffering in the book of Revelation, that minority community of believers, they needed to be reminded that God's on His throne and He knows what's happening. And God will take care of you. There's a lot more in Revelation 11, but I don't want to confuse my daughter and think I'm going to go for an hour. I want to show you one more text. It's in Revelation 3. I know they're out of order, but Revelation 3, this is our reading from this morning. It's the church in Philadelphia. It's one of the few churches, one of the only churches in the text of Revelation in the letters that has a very positive report from beginning to end. Someone had come into this church and had tried to pretend to be teachers. They weren't real teachers. They were false teachers. They had denied the name of Jesus. But the church in Philadelphia had not. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. And Jesus says, if they hold to the word of Christ, listen to this, verse 11, I'm coming soon, hold fast to what you have so that no one will seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of God. If the church remained faithful, If the church refused to give in to the pressures of culture. If the church refused to define morality and right and wrong by the way the Roman Empire did. If the church refused to be moderate in matters of morality. If the church refused to deny the name of Jesus Christ. If the church refused... To hate their neighbor the way the world hated their neighbor. If the church refused to put distinctions where God had torn them down. 
If the church refused to walk away to the injustice around them, they would be made a pillar in the temple of God. One of the most ornate, foundational, supportive aspects of the temple. They're on display for all the world to see. But only if they refuse to cave to the pressures outside their walls. The news has not been good this week. But God today is seated where God sat last Sunday. Still on his throne. And God's promise to the churches in Revelation that I will protect you, that I see what's happening, that I feel what's happening, his promise to respond at the right time is just as true today as it was last Sunday. I like what our brother in Ferguson, Missouri said in a sermon. We are not surprised by the lawlessness of man, the arrogance of politics, the irresponsibility of the media, the dishonesty of religious leaders, the false teaching of self-proclaimed prophets, or the inability of the kingdom of the government to bring justice, fairness, equality, and peace to this world. Because after all, it's the same system that crucified the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What John is trying to tell the church is that justice rests in the hands of an almighty God. And that whatever the church faces, they are the temple of the living God. So hear the words of Revelation again. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, and honor, and glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the sermon that I mostly had ready Friday morning. Let's pray. Lord, our world desperately needs you. And in your wisdom, you have placed us here and called us to be your temple, your dwelling place. God, help us to be just that. A place where all of our differences fade and are replaced by the image of Christ. We believe, just as we saw in Revelation this morning, Lord, that you are seated on your throne and that you are not idle. You will bring about righteous judgment, and we believe that you have measured your temple, that you know who belongs to you. And, Father, we pray among us that you have been called, that you will be, your will will be done on earth just as it is done in heaven. Bless us, Lord, as we set about this task.
this week, wherever we find ourselves, in Jesus' name, amen. If you are not a Christian this morning, then you do not know the joy and the security in knowing that God is seated on His throne. That no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what is said about us, this truth remains. God knows what's happening. And God in His divine justice and mercy will one day set all things to right. And He wants you and me to be part of that. And so He sent His Son. Worthy is the Lamb. Slaying for the sins of the world. And He's creating a temple, a church, a kingdom made of people of all nations, races, and ages. And through Jesus Christ, if you have faith in Him and you're willing to give your life to Him, submit to Him in baptism, God will make you part of that kingdom. And He'll do that today. And we invite you to make that decision if you've not already done so. While together we stand and sing.